You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm very honoured to be joined by Ambassador Nathan Sales. Ambassador Sales recently became a member of the CEP Advisory Board. He is also a non-resident senior fellow with the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative and Middle East programmes. He focuses on counterterrorism, security, democracy and the rule of law and human rights. Ambassador Sales was unanimously confirmed by the US Senate as Coordinator for Counterterrorism on August 3rd, 2017. He served in that role until January 2021. He also served concurrently as Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy and Human Rights and as Special Presidential Envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. In today's podcast, we will discuss the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban and explore how this could impact the terror threat globally. So, Ambassador Sales, I'm really delighted to uh, to have you join the podcast today. Um, it's been a really uh, a really interesting period. Obviously, um, this is extremely timely with the anniversary of 9-11, the 20-year anniversary, and also, of course, um, the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan in August and all that has unfolded since then. So um, I suppose I'd like to start by asking you the shock, I think, um, worldwide uh, at the you know, the triumph of the Taliban, if you like, um, the the return of the Taliban um, to a position of governance in Afghanistan. Um, how do you how do you judge this? Was it a surprise or, you know, was this something that you and others had predicted for, for quite some time? Well, I, the first thing I'll say is it, it's great to be here. I'm really delighted to have this conversation with you, Lucinda, and I'm grateful to all the listeners who are joining us uh, to, to talk about these important issues. I, I guess um, I would take a step back and, and uh Think about what the end game in Afghanistan means for our broader counterterrorism objectives since 9-11, since the attacks 20 years ago. And I think what we've seen in Afghanistan over the past uh, six weeks with the Taliban's return to power has produced a certain amount of pessimism uh, in the United States and skepticism about the last 20 years worth of counterterrorism efforts. And I think some of that skepticism and pessimism is understandable, but I think it can obscure uh, what is in reality a, a very good story. And that is the United States and our Western European partners are so much better at counterterrorism today than we were 20 years ago. Whether that is measured in terms of the effectiveness of our military interventions or civilian sector tools like border security, like financial sanctions, like law enforcement, like information sharing and collection, across all of those different dimensions, the U.S. and our friends are orders of magnitude better at protecting our homelands and taking the fight to our adversaries today uh, than was the case 20 years ago. Uh, Now, what we've seen in Afghanistan over the past six weeks is certainly disheartening and distressing. 
Um, and I think um, it's going to produce instability uh, over the long run that is conducive to the incubation of further terrorist threats. I think with the Taliban back in power, we have to assume that their terrorist allies like Al Qaeda are going to have a new lease on life. Um, and even their terrorist enemies like ISIS, uh, a group with which they are in open conflict, is going to try to exploit the security vacuums that will inevitably arise in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan as this group tries to consolidate power. So there's a lot there. Uh, we, we can take this conversation in any number of directions, but those are some you know, high-level thoughts on the situation we're facing. I think that's a that's a really excellent um, scene setter, and uh, I'm certainly really interested to explore the medium and long term implications for for um, our security generally and for um, counterterrorism across the board arising from what has occurred in Afghanistan. One of one of the things that I think struck many people and it certainly generated a lot of attention on both sides of the Atlantic were some of the remarks um, from President Biden around, um, you know, the the role of the Afghan army, the the what he perceives as failure of the Afghan armed forces and a certain degree of criticism of their sort of um, lack of um, of willingness to fight for their country. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Um, and obviously, you know, given the fact that international forces were, you know, effectively responsible for, for training and preparing Afghan uh, forces over an extended period, you know, is there a certain blame or a fault that can be laid at the door of, um, of the international community? I don't think it's a fair criticism. I don't think it's an accurate criticism. Uh, obviously, we were all disappointed by the collapse of the Afghan army over the past six weeks. Uh, but I think it's important to understand exactly what led to that collapse. We never trained them to fight in the circumstances they found themselves in. Um, the, the, the United States and our NATO allies spent 20 years training Afghan security forces to fight the same way that U.S. forces fight. That is to say, um, uh, with a heavy reliance on air support provided by the United States. The minute the Biden administration took away the possibility of U.S. air support, we, we put our Afghan partners in a fight for which they were unprepared, for which we did not prepare them. And compounding this situation was the fact that the Biden administration withdrew not just uh, American air support provided by the U.S. directly, we also pulled out the contractors who were responsible for maintaining the Afghan army, uh, their equipment and so on, um, the, the, the air assets of the Afghan army. So the minute we pulled out U.S. air support and the minute we pulled out contractors that enabled the Afghans to service their own air assets, um, we basically put them in a situation where they could not win. And, and so I think the United States has to take a, a close look, a hard look at that decision um, uh, as uh, and assess our responsibility for the choices we made that resulted in the Afghan army's collapse. Look, these people fought hard for 20 years 
I think 60,000 is the number. 60,000 uh, Afghan soldiers gave their lives or suffered uh, uh, combat injuries. These people were willing to fight. They were willing to fight for their country. They were willing to fight alongside their American allies. We took away the air support that they depended on, and you see the inevitable result. Yeah, I mean, I think when you put it in those stark terms, it it is it's it's pretty alarming, and I think it explains a lot in terms of how rapid the onslaught of the Taliban was in the end, and you know, even the White House admitted it was much much quicker than anticipated. Does it also maybe explain? the somewhat or at least apparently somewhat muted resistance from the population generally in Afghanistan? I mean, was it simply a case that, you know, the inevitable, you know, just was unavoidable? And uh, and so it seemed there was little hope or little prospect of um, of any successful resistance from the population at large. You know, I, I think it's really hard to answer that question because we're still so close in time to the Taliban's uh, recovery of power. Uh, I would not bet on the Taliban consolidating power over the next six months in a um, seamless and uh, orderly way. I think this is a terrorist organization. Let's call it what it is. It, it, it is a designated terrorist organization uh, under the United Nations sanctions regime and under United States law. Uh, this is a terrorist organization that does not have a mandate. It is not seen as a legitimate governing, governing body by the vast majority of the Afghan people. So I would expect to see over the next six months uh, various popular uprisings and maybe armed uprisings challenging or contesting the Taliban's claim to rule. We're already seeing spontaneous protests on the streets of Kabul, incredibly courageous women in particular, um, who have gotten accustomed to Western-style liberties uh, and, and the ability to work the ability to drive cars, the ability to appear in public without a male escort, who are not going to go quietly back into the Middle Ages. Uh, and, and I think we need to keep a very close eye on uh, what these popular movements are going to do uh, to contest the Taliban's rule, to pressure the Taliban. And I think um, the United States and, and NATO and uh, the entire international community needs to stand in solidarity with these movements and provide them with the resources that they need, starting with legitimacy. We, we should not be granting diplomatic recognition to their oppressors, the Taliban. We should not be granting sanctions relief to open up the spigots of money that the Taliban can use to consolidate control uh, over these groups that are still committed to American values um, and, and Western liberal norms. So, you know, I, I think um, they, like they, the Afghans, like the rest of the world, were surprised by the speed with which the Taliban took power. But, but I don't think that they are going to simply surrender um, and give up on their commitments to human rights and the rule of law. I, I think we should look for them to continue to pursue the values that they have enjoyed for 20 years. And I think we need to stand with them. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. Um, and I think I want to tease some of that out with you in a little bit more detail in a moment. Um, but just on the U.S., withdrawal strategy. I mean, obviously it has been criticized domestically in the US. I mean, 
I'm not sure. It seems there is kind of general public support for withdrawal, but obviously the nature in which it was executed, I think, is um, has damaged the uh, credibility of the administration. And it has also dr- damaged the transatlantic um, relationship. Um, you know, certainly the mood music in European capitals and in Brussels is somewhat different now to, to what it was even a few months ago. And that is not unconnected to what has occurred in Afghanistan. You know, partners uh, were NATO partners were were to some extent um, blindsided. So, I mean, I know you've been critical um, of how this has been carried out. How do you think, you know, assuming that there was always going to be a withdrawal, how do you think it could have been carried out better by the administration? Yeah, great, great question. So uh, let me actually answer a different part of that question that you didn't ask, um, which is, was a withdrawal inevitable? And and I don't think it was. I think the American people had no appetite whatsoever for major combat operations in Afghanistan involving tens of thousands of American troops. The, the era of massive boots on the ground deployments is over. But I think what could have been sustainable politically um, had the White House invested in explaining the costs and benefits of this approach, I think what could have been politically sustainable is a small U.S. presence of 2,500 soldiers focused narrowly on counterterrorism rather than the more ambitious nation-building projects that we saw uh, with mission creep over the past 20 years. And remember, it's not just 2,500 American soldiers, it's 2,500 Americans plus about 8,000 soldiers from NATO allies, which gets you a force of about 10,000. And and I think, you know, with that investment, um, you're able to maintain a relative amount of stability uh, in Afghanistan, and you're just as importantly, and I would say more importantly, you're you're still able to apply counterterrorism pressure to groups like Al Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups that may emerge in the future that we're not even aware of right now. That was actually what all of Biden's top advisors advised him to do. We already knew that uh, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the combatant commander, CENTCOM, uh, encouraged the president to leave a small residual force narrowly focused on counterterrorism and providing training and advice to the Afghan army. Um, We're now hearing from the new Bob Woodward book that the Secretary of State Antony Blinken likewise urged President Biden keep a small U.S. counterterrorism presence there of about 2,500 troops. It was the president's decision to disregard the advice from his diplomats, to disregard the advice from his generals uh, and from his civilian leadership at DOD and pull out altogether, Mm. um, which I think was regrettable. But he's the president, elections have consequences, and, and he made the decision. Now, once that decision is made, could it have been handled better? Yeah, I absolutely think the withdrawal could have been handled in a much more orderly and professional way, starting with you don't set arbitrary deadlines. Um, The White House initially insisted that everybody be out by September 11th. I don't know what public relations genius decided to pick the 9-11 anniversary (laughs) as as the deadline. So they accelerated it to August 31st. But that was always an arbitrary deadline. 
and it drove uh, a number of the pathologies in the White House's decision-making process that resulted in catastrophic uh, failures. Because of that hard and fast arbitrary deadline, we were not in a position to go out into Kabul um, go out into the countryside and recover every single American. We had we left people behind because there was not enough time to get them all out by August 31st. B- because of the August 31st deadline, uh, we were not in a position to get out our Afghan allies who now have uh, massive targets on their back as the Taliban goes door to door with execution squads to seek revenge on the people who helped the United States for two decades. So the arbitrary deadline was one thing that the White House, uh, a self-inflicted error that could have been avoided. And another self-inflicted error that could have been avoided was we needed better coordination with our NATO allies. Why is NATO in Afghanistan in the first place? The only reason they're there is because of solidarity with the United States. After 9-11, NATO invoked Article 5 for the first time ever, um, the collective self-defense provision in the NATO treaty. An attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, NATO didn't have to do that, but they did it out of solidarity with the United States. And I think NATO was entitled, I mean, the, the United States isn't going to give any country, not even our best friends, a veto on what is in our own national security interests, but they deserve better than reading about it in the newspaper. Um, which is unfortunately what a number of NATO allies have reported, that they didn't get buy-in uh, or, or transparency from the White House um, in, in terms of their thinking on this issue. So um, it was a bad decision to pull out altogether, and it was compounded by the manner in which it was carried out. Yeah, I mean, that's the really stark overview. Um, I think I, I think the point about explaining the cost benefit of maintaining a small, you know, very focused uh, residual force, I think um, is one that potentially could have been very well understood by the American population at large and, and indeed by the other NATO partners who've been present in Afghanistan all along. Uh, and it, it seems somewhat extraordinary that there, that there was no political decision to do that, because I, I think uh, in terms of the damage that's been done, it's not just the damage in Afghanistan, but there's also a damage now for, from a credibility point of view to both the president himself, his administration, but also to those partnerships that we've talked about. Um, You may or may not have heard, but the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, in her uh, State of the Union speech, effectively referred to NATO now being in crisis, which I think is, you know, not a position that anybody in Europe thought we would be in eight or nine months after uh, a change in in the administration and on the other side of the Atlantic. So it's it's really it's really um, quite extraordinary. One of the, I guess, I mean, there are so many, as you said at the beginning, there's so many avenues that we can go down here. But one of the, I think, fallouts from uh, what has occurred in Afghanistan will be uh, around, I mean, we saw the scenes of Kabul at airport, thousands of Afghans trying to leave, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, who worked with and supported and were friends of uh, the NATO allies now trapped in Afghanistan, as you said, with a mark on their back, you know, literally being being hunted down and potentially hunted down by by the Taliban. Do you anticipate a new um, refugee crisis now from Afghanistan, uh, from the region more generally? Is that something that the US and Europe should be concerned about? I think 
we do have to be concerned about that. Um, we airlifted over 100,000 people out, but I don't think we have great visibility yet on exactly who got out and who is left behind. I think we know that uh, literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Afghans who worked with the United States and who worked with NATO are still there. And, and those are the people who absolutely have to be at the top of our list uh, in terms of priorities. Um, of course, our heart goes out to all Afghans who are now facing the grim reality of Taliban rule. But, but we have to prioritize the people who literally put their lives on the line to work with the U.S., to work with NATO, because they believe in the values that the United States and NATO stand for. Um, and, and unfortunately, I, I just don't think we have a, a good plan yet for um, uh, getting all of those Afghan allies to safety. I, I think we're hearing some disturbing signs from the Taliban that you know, they're worried about brain drain. Um, and they should be like nobody wants to live under Taliban rule. But but rather than uh, having this prompt, perhaps a moment of reflection and introspection about why so many talented Afghans are looking to get out, um, uh, much like uh, East Germany, um, uh, they're, they're going to just uh, lock down the border to the best of their ability uh, and, and try and keep their uh, most talented and most creative citizens from from escaping to safety. So what, what does this mean for, for Europe? Well, I, I think we do have to be worried about um, a mass scale migration and, and refugee crisis. Uh, you know, Afghanistan is farther away from European soil than Syria was, but I think the, the experience that, that Europe had with Syrian refugees in the 2014-2015 era as ISIS was uh, consolidating its brutal rule uh, over parts of Syria and Iraq, that experience has to loom large in policymakers' minds right now um, as, as they think about uh, what, what can be done to help Afghans who, who need help um, while also avoiding uh, destabilizing uh, movements of people that that could have uh, 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 you know long-term security repercussions. D don't forget, like the vast majority of people who fled Syria for Europe were not terrorists. But the risk is that terrorists are going to exploit those refugee flows by hiding among them. Uh, and we know that uh, some of the perpetrators of the Paris and Brussels attacks in 15 and 16 were able to do exactly that. And again, the, the point is not that we have to assume that every Afghan trying to escape is a terrorist. Clearly not. They're yeah. fleeing from the terrorists in, in the vast majority of cases. But we have to make sure that the people who are coming to Europe or to the United States are who they say they are uh, so that we can prevent AQ or ISIS from exploiting those uh, movements of people to try and send um, uh, operatives into Western Europe, into the U.S. to carry out attacks. Yeah, I mean, that's a point that really resonates in terms of, I mean, nobody wants to poison the debate about migration or immigration um, or asylum with uh, with a discussion about terrorism. But we do know, and you've pointed to two very good examples of how, you know, innocent refugees and migrants can be can be exploited um, or how those systems um, or should I say 
maybe the the gaps in the systems can be can be abused by uh, people who have very malign agendas. And I think it's something that, you know, maybe certainly I think, as you pointed out at the beginning, you know, we have come a long way in 20 years. We've come a long way even in four or five years. And our 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 security mechanisms are, are much better now than they were. But this is a new challenge. And I guess it will require uh, some innovation to respond to it. Um, and Lucinda, if, if, yeah. yeah. if I could just jump in with one more point on, on that issue. We are much better at screening people who want to come to the U.S. Uh, Europe is much better at screening people who want to come to Europe. So I, I think... Look, I think there's a responsible way to t- talk about these issues that, that doesn't involve demonizing Afghans or anybody else who are justifiably trying to escape from terrorism and brutality in their home country. So I think it's incumbent upon policymakers in the West to explain to their populations exactly why we are confident in our ability to screen out the bad guys and and assure the American people or assure the people of Europe um, that the screening mechanisms we have in place are going to do a reliable job of separating the wheat from the chaff. There's a responsible way to do this that talks about how effective these systems are and highlights success stories over the past 20 years that doesn't involve um, promoting nativism or xenophobia or uh, hostility to refugees who have a legitimate need uh, to escape brutality in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. for those for those left behind um, under Taliban rule, I mean, we saw the extreme nature of um, the Taliban's um, regime from 1996 onwards. They're kind of presenting this, you know, fluffy, you know, uh, uh, caring new. Taliban 2.0, you know, they want to keep maintain education for women. They want to be perceived to be more liberal. Um, and um, and obviously a lot of that is connected to the fact that the, the country is so heavily reliant on international aid. Do you believe any of this narrative? Or do you think that we, you know, it's only a matter of time before Afghanistan now descends back to the, the dark days of, of um, the last ta- Taliban administration? No. I don't believe them and, and nobody should believe them. The, the the charm offensive that the Taliban has been undertaking for the past several months is only a charm offensive. And it's not going to produce, it's not going to result in any significant changes to the manner in which they misrule Afghanistan. Look, the 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 the, the, the Taliban said the right things back in 1996, the first time they took power. They talked about national reconciliation. They talked about inclusivity. And we know how that story turned out. So I don't expect Taliban 2.0 to be any different than Taliban 1.0. And and, and you, you can judge them already by the cabinet members they've appointed. Of the 33 cabinet members they announced the other day, 17 of them are U.S. and U.N. sanctioned terrorists, um, fully 50 percent 
more than 50% of them are, are, are uh, designated terrorists, including the interior minister uh, who has a $10 million bounty on his head from the FBI and is one of the FBI's most wanted terrorists in the world. That does not inspire any confidence whatsoever that the Taliban has turned the corner and is going to govern in uh, a different way than they did 20 years ago. So how is the international community? I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, ensuring that there's no sanction relief for the Taliban, that, you know, the measures that are in place um, in terms of treating them like the hostile terrorist organization that they are effectively. How do we reconcile that with um, the plight of ordinary Afghans, with the aid packages that are uh, distributed to Afghanistan? It's going to be really complicated, isn't it? It's going to be really complicated. I think the twin goals when it comes to humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan have to be one, do whatever we can do to meet the need of the Afghan people. And two, to do that in a way that does not in any way legitimize or reinforce or reward the Taliban. Now that's going to be very, very difficult. Um, As we've seen in other parts of the world where terrorist groups control territory uh, and exercise the levers of government power, I'm thinking of places like Somalia where Al-Shabaab is present or Yemen where the Houthis are active or you know, in Syria and Iraq in the past uh, five years, 10 years uh, during the, the, the rise of ISIS. In, in all of these places, when, when terrorist groups control border checkpoints, when they control uh, you know, local ministries, it's inevitable that they're going to take some of the aid that's provided and use it to enrich themselves. Um, That's basically a a price of doing business. And so I expect the Taliban will do something similar in Afghanistan. And, you know, I think if the West provides aid, as I think we have to assume that it will, um, it's going to have to find workarounds that minimize that Taliban graft to the absolute maximum extent possible. I I think we have to be realistic and expect that some of it is going to be uh, taken away. Some of the aid is going to be siphoned away by our adversaries. Um, But uh, we have to put in place mechanisms that that limit the Taliban's ability to profit from our generosity to the Afghan people. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's a it's a shocking irony that after 20 years of you know trying to build democratic structures in Afghanistan that and and simultaneously you know building all of these international um, mechanisms countering terrorist financing that you know we end up with a situation whereby potentially uh, international aid is going to be used for exactly that. Um, yeah, the, I think um, the international commu- community will certainly have their work cut out um, to avoid that outcome. Maybe more generally, um, looking at what this means now for extremist and Islamist movements um, around the world and specifically within Afghanistan. Um, you touched on this at the beginning, but it, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to gauge or quantify. What are your thoughts in terms of? You know, how does the reemergence of the Taliban serve to simply inspire Islamist organizations and terrorist organizations in different parts of the world? And specifically, I guess, Al-Qaeda and, of course, ISIS, with whom Al-Qaeda has a pretty fraught relationship. 
Well, I think this is going to be a, a, an enormous propaganda victory for Sunni jihadists all around the world. And I think you know, we're already starting to see jihadists from other parts of the globe expressing an interest in traveling to Afghanistan to, uh, to not just celebrate, right, but, but to uh, continue the fight. Um, they, they see Afghanistan under Taliban control as a hospitable environment for them to grow their networks and uh, plot attacks against their enemies. That is to say, against the United States, against Western Europe, um, uh, against the Gulf monarchies uh, and their other adversaries. We, we know that the Taliban has worked hand in glove with Al Qaeda for 20, 25 years they're going to continue to do so, we have to assume. I think we have to assume that the Taliban is going to give Al Qaeda something like the safe haven that it enjoyed prior to 9-11. Um, and I think we have to assume that Al Qaeda will develop and reconstitute networks that it will use to plot external operations. What's the timeline for that look like? Uh, I think we heard earlier this week from members of our intelligence community, they predicted maybe one to two years before Al-Qaeda would have a, a, a reconstituted external operations capability. Um, that, by the way, is down from an estimate of two years, which is what we heard a couple of months ago. But, but I think even that one-year timetable, one to two-year timetable is, is pretty uh, optimistic. Uh, six months strikes me as a more realistic timetable in light of uh, the number of fighters who've been released from prison and who will be going back into Al-Qaeda in light of the weapons that the Taliban has taken, the U.S. supplied weapons that will now be finding their way uh, into terrorist hands, uh, in light of the financial resources now available to the Taliban as it controls the Afghan state. Uh, some of that is going to be siphoned off and, and, and head into Al-Qaeda's coffers. So um, I don't want to sound alarmist here. I'm not predicting another 9-11 in six months, uh, but, but only to say that uh, Al-Qaeda certainly has the intention to carry out operations against uh, the U.S. And, and Western Europe, and it will certainly be trying to restore its capabilities to do so. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's just Al-Qaeda. What about ISIS? But just on, um, on Al-Qaeda, al before we move on to ISIS, I mean, I, I know you're not predicting another 9-11, God forbid, but what, what, what type of external operations do you think could be credible or conceivable or what are the likely targets in six to 12 months, say? Yeah, that, that's, that's really hard to predict. I, I, what we know is that Al-Qaeda has no shortage of enemies around the world or around the region. Uh, I, I think... You know, one scenario would involve Al-Qaeda uh, plotting attacks against the so-called near enemies, uh, whether that's uh, countries near Afghanistan or the Gulf monarchies, uh, as a sort of incremental step towards a more ambitious uh, global uh, external operations capability. But, but again, I, I just I don't think we know enough yet to be able to make any kind of reliable predictions about what that would look like. And on that point, then, in just in terms of, um, I suppose, intelligence capability, I mean, is that completely dismantled now in Afghanistan? Or, you know, what does that look like? Uh, it, what it looks like is is not very good, I think, is the answer. Yeah. Um, all, so the flip side of this coin is that just as Al-Qaeda and potentially other terrorist networks are reconstituting themselves in Afghanistan, 
our ability to collect information about them is going to be severely degraded. I think I saw the other day an estimate that the United States has now lost 90% of its collection assets uh, to gather information about terrorist threats in Afghanistan. That sounds about right. Um, If you don't have um, an embassy, you don't have a station. If you don't have military assets in the country, um, it's much more difficult to run not only uh, signals intelligence, but also human intelligence networks on the ground. So um, I, I think we will be severely disadvantaged in terms of our ability to collect information on our adversaries' plans, um, will be disadvantaged in our ability to develop pattern of life for the targets that we might wish to remove from the battlefield. Um, And then with strike assets located, as far as I can tell, only in the Gulf, an eight-hour flight away, it's going to be much harder to take action um, when policymakers decide that the system is blinking red and, and we need to take action. But that's an incredible um, diminution of intelligence capability um, and strike capability. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Biden administration is is talking about their over-the-horizon capability. That is to say, using assets based out of Afghanistan, out of the region, uh, to carry out attacks. Uh, you, you know what they call it in the intelligence community? They're calling this over-the-rainbow uh, because <laughs> it's just fantastic to think. Right. It's just a fantasy to think that you would be anywhere near as effective as having assets located in the country. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. Um, I interrupted you as you were just about to move on to um, to discuss ISIS and what this means for ISIS. I think that would also be very interesting to hear. Yeah. So I I think uh, we know a little bit less here, but I think we know enough that we can start to make some credible or plausible hypotheses about how ISIS is going to operate. So the the starting point here is, of course, ISIS and the Taliban are enemies, and they've been fighting each other uh, for a number of years in Afghanistan. But I don't think we can assume from that that the Taliban will have the wherewithal to neutralize ISIS threats um, to the region or ISIS threats to the US um, or or US interests around the world. The, The Taliban may have the will to keep ISIS under control, but it strikes me as unlikely that they will have the capability to do so. And they, the security environment in Afghanistan is probably going to be fraught uh, as the Taliban seeks to consolidate control. Um, there's probably going to be security vacuums and, and, and ISIS is probably going to try to exploit those security vacuums to develop their networks. So it would be a mistake for the United States to sort of outsource responsibility for collecting information and applying pressure to ISIS to outsource those responsibilities to the Taliban. They simply are not going to have the capabilities that the United States would have. And as we saw with the ISIS attack at Kabul International Airport, you know, those that bomber made it through Taliban checkpoints, whether that's because the Taliban just aren't very good at spotting ISIS or or, or for some other reason, uh, that is a very dramatic and I think vivid illustration of what can go wrong if you assume that the Taliban has the will and capability to neutralize ISIS threats in Afghanistan. Yeah. 
um, is is it possible but that the Taliban can deliberately turn a blind eye or even utilize ISIS in certain instances? Oh, it's hard. It's, I think it's hard to say. I think they are more likely to turn a blind eye than they are to to work um, as a sort of tactical partner of ISIS. Something worth watching. Okay, maybe um, following on from that, you know, I think it's 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 well known that certain elements of the Pakistani security apparatus um, have close relationships with the Taliban. How do you see that playing out? Um, Will that relationship become closer and deeper and will it have implications for Pakistan's relationship with the US and and other Western allies? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, So Pakistan has been playing a double game with the United States and with NATO for 20 years now, um, purporting to be a counterterrorism partner while giving safe haven to Taliban leadership uh, and more than just safe haven, but also uh, financial support and other kinds of support. Well, they got what they wanted. Pakistan wants uh, the Taliban to be in control of Afghanistan for a whole host of reasons, including strategic depth in its competition and conflict with India. And I think now that this Pandora's box has been opened, there is a significant risk of blowback to Pakistan. And Afghanistan under Taliban control is going to be an Afghanistan that is a magnet for jihadists around the world, including jihadists who are hostile to Pakistan. And don't forget, what we call the Taliban is just the Afghan Taliban. And there's also uh, the tariq e taliban Pakistan or Pakistani Taliban, uh, which is closely aligned with the Afghan Taliban, but seeks to uh, bring violence and bloodshed uh, to Islamabad. Yeah. So there's a risk that with uh, Afghan uh, government now under control of the Taliban, uh, that there will be benefits to the Pakistani Taliban in terms of its resources, in terms of its operating space uh, that could result in attacks in Pakistan itself. So I I think the United States has always had a clear understanding of the duplicitous game that Pakistan has been playing. Our appetite for tolerating it has waxed and waned over the years. Uh, But but I, I think in the past 20 years, to the extent that American policymakers felt the need to overlook Pakistan's duplicitous role. It was because American policymakers felt they needed Pakistan's help in bringing the Taliban to the negotiating table or, you know, to to help uh, apply counterterrorism pressure uh, in Afghanistan. We don't need Pakistan for any of that anymore. Um, So it seems to me that the time is now ripe uh, to to think about um, what the relationship with Islamabad should look like in light of two decades worth of duplicitousness. That's really interesting. You know, the the, the prospect of calling calling Pakistan's bluff to some extent. I think it would be really interesting to see how that plays out. Other other actors, I suppose, who have uh, always have an interest in in uh, foreign policy decisions going wrong for for the U.S. or for NATO, Iran, China, Russia. I mean, they all have an interest in this. I mean, are you seeing evidence of them moving in? Some of them have been already, you know, had lines of communication, obviously open with the Taliban. How, how, how without, you know, starting a whole other podcast episode, um, how, how do you see that playing out? Not well, uh, and to the detriment of the United States and our Western partners. 
uh, is how I see that playing out. I think we have to expect that our great power rivals like China and Russia, um, and, and also Iran, though it's not a great power, but it is a rival, all of these malign states will use the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to further their own uh, objectives in the country, in the region, and globally. And that's that's the great irony. If you ask the White House why they wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan, part of the explanation is, well, we need to reprioritize great power competition, and we need to prioritize our competition with China, our principal strategic competitor. But the way you compete with China is not by handing them Bagram. And, and the way you compete with China is not handing them access to rare earths uh, that they will now seek to exploit from Afghanistan. Um, so there's a bitter irony to the fact that a, a, a withdrawal decision that was to a large extent motivated by great power competition is actually going to enrich our principal competitors. Um, so I think when it comes to China, uh, I've mentioned a couple of their interests in the country. Um, I think Russia's interest is going to be to play this up to demonstrate uh, what they see as American unreliability, uh, to strengthen their connections with their regional partners, uh, the, the Central Asian states, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and, and others in the region, to try and prevent the U.S. from establishing inroads there. Iran, I would be surprised if the uh, Quds Force isn't already uh, establishing operations in Afghanistan. So yeah, it's um, it's going to be a playground for America's adversaries. And I think we have to count on them to promote their malign interests there at the expense of NATO and the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a pretty pessimistic uh, picture, the realistic one, I think. Um, As we draw to the to the end of our discussion, um, uh, two things I'd like to ask you about. Um, One is the prospect for, you know, the potential for a growing resistance movement. Um, We've seen some signs of it, as you said earlier. Um, Just wonder if you think that's going to be credible or feasible or whether it'll be entirely eliminated by by the Taliban. What what the US and NATO allies can do perhaps to support it or whether they should or not. Um, And maybe you're just your longer term view of Afghanistan, like from from your vantage point with all of your vast experience um, dealing with counterterrorism and also focusing on the region, you know, um, what do you think could and should happen next from the point of view of the US and NATO? Those are are both really good and difficult questions. And and they're related because, well, they're related. So what what does the future of Afghanistan look like six months out, a year out? I, I think we're going to be looking at instability and violence. I think the Taliban is in a stronger position to consolidate control today than they were back in 1996 to 2001, uh, the last time they held power. Um, They control more of the country. Uh, They have better weaponry now. It's US supplied weaponry. And the resistance movements such as they are, are not as well organized today uh, as they were 25, 20 years ago. So they're in a, they, the Taliban, are in a better position to uh, assert their rule over the country. But I, I think they're going to still face 
a number of challenges in doing so, starting with the fact that they are not a legitimate government. This is, in effect, an armed coup uh, that has forcibly displaced the democratically elected and legitimate government um, and that can only maintain power by uh, continuing to threaten violence against civilian populations or uh, domestic opponents. That is not a recipe for stability. That is a recipe for instability. And so I, I think, well, it's still very early and it, it's hard to predict exactly where the resistance movements are going to spring up um, and, and what they're going to look like, I think we have to assume that there will be uh, resistance to Taliban rule, whether it's armed resistance initially or, or just uh, political protest, hard to say. But, but I think, um, look, the United States should side with those who want democracy in Afghanistan, not those who are trying to destroy democracy in Afghanistan. Exactly what kind of support that looks like is going to depend on the specific circumstances. Um, also, whether you provide support overtly or, or through covert channels is also an important question for policymakers to weigh. But just as a, as a matter of principle and as a matter of strategic, um, strategic priorities, the United States and the West should side with the movements that share our values and that share our interests. And that's not the Taliban. You know, I think that's a that's actually a great way to to conclude this discussion. I think you've summed it up really well. Uh, Ambassador Nathan Sales, thank you so much for what has been a really fascinating tour of um, Afghanistan, of the history context and all of the moving parts. I really appreciate your insights and your time. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. My pleasure, Lucinda. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Nathan. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 